How was your weekend, by the way? It was... Dang, it's... Feels like it still is a weekend. I have no real distinction it's between Tuesday, weekends dude. and weekdays. I mean, it's all the, it's all the same for me. So, I mean, the weekend was great, though. Is it really all the same? Is your weekend like basically planned the exact same way your weekdays are? Literally, the only difference between my weekends and my weekdays is weekdays we have our co-founder meeting, and that's literally it. So, my weekend, I probably just do a little bit more personal work. That's the only difference. But you don't find like your friends uh like change that because i've most of my friends don't run startups or you know they're not like financially independent so they're free on the weekends and so if they want to go on hikes or they want to uh do fun shit they basically plan it on the weekends which means that i end up doing most of my social stuff over the weekend no well with me i my friends and i hang out on weekdays we go out and get food also there's a little bit of a blurry line for me because my girlfriend works from home three days a week. So we frequently, in the middle of weekdays, we'll just go to like, you know, the botanical gardens or right. do random things. So to me, like, yeah, there really is no, it's like, there's no boundary here. Yeah. I had a, uh, a wedding this past weekend. You know, um, Phil and Crystal. Mm-hmm. They got married on Saturday. They've been together for like, I think six years. So uh, basically everybody that I know, like half of my friends from college um, and San Francisco, like came out for the wedding and crashed at my place basically it was a blast man it's so awesome having people come over and stay it just makes me wish everybody lived in the same city like i thought i just like arrange that do you, do you i can't make everybody move to the same city because everybody has jobs that tie them to a certain location or they've got family they've got roots man have you ever people lobbied for this though i mean yeah constantly even the wedding was like in part uh plan on like a really nice weekend in seattle where the wedding uh, where the weather would be great to subtly convince everybody who came to town to consider moving here and so like there's plans on plans on plans to try to get people to like coalesce into one place. But I think the opposite has happened. Like since I've graduated college, like in the very first year, a lot of people stayed in Boston. Um, but after that, like people all went out to different cities to get jobs. And I just had like some pipe dream in my head that people would like make a lot of money and then eventually like move closer together. Um, but it's even gotten worse because a lot of people moved to cities for jobs and things got remote. So then they moved out to like the wilderness. So now I have friends in like, you know, the middle of nowhere in the woods in New Hampshire are in Wisconsin and it just keeps getting like more and more spread out. So I've sort of given up on this dream of everybody that I know living close together. It's just going to be, I think less and less of that. You have to just, you have to abandon all of your college friends and then just try to get (laughs) as many of these like remote working tech founders as you can build a tech city, right? Ride that wave. I mean, Peter levels did it, right? Yeah. But I don't want to be surrounded by nothing but tech people. That's what (laughs) San Francisco was for 10 years. I want to be surrounded by people who are like, doing other things, living around people who don't make me want to work constantly. Hey, what's up, Laurent? Hey, Corlin. Hey, Channing. Good to see you guys. I was just listening to some episodes from the backlog. Good stuff. Cool, cool. We're sitting here debating the merits of living around a bunch of tech people or living around a bunch of people who are not uh, tech founders. And I feel like I lived in SF for 10 years and I got the first experience. Now I'm in Seattle doing like the second version. I think I like the second version better. I also kind of want to make an assumption, Liron, that you you are going to be that you're an opponent to tech cities. Uh, well, you know, I'm pretty flexible. I've always loved remote work, and I actually just came out of doing two years in upstate New York, um, this town called Gansvert. That's like uh, three hours away from New York City, and um, you know, day to day didn't really affect my life, but I just like had this sense of isolation that went away when I moved back to San Jose. So, uh, oh, yeah, you know, take it for what it's worth. Were you just like out in the woods, like not not much around you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd go out. You know, we had three acres. It was like the first time I, uh, you know, lived in a house like that that wasn't kind of like packed into a suburb. And like, I would just like walk my dog like around the property. And it was just like gratuitously large with like a bunch of random trees and like a swamp. And it's like, (laughs) you know, I learned about myself. Like, I'm not really a country guy. So I'm like very much like Silicon Valley nerd. Yeah, me either. I'm like much more of a city guy. And so my like ideal is not like living out in the woods or living out where there's nobody. Like, I want to be surrounded by people. I want to like have convenience like I can walk two blocks and I'm at Whole Foods like that's my preferred setup but I also want the people around me to have like I don't know like a diversity of careers and interests because when I lived in San Francisco everybody I knew was working on a startup and so like it pushed me to feel like if I don't if I'm not working 24 7 like something's wrong with me and uh like case in point like everybody I know in San Francisco was like single and like their mid to late 30s (laughs) because no one cared it was just like normal to do that Sort of trying to figure out like what's the best balance of, of living around people who 
are super hardcore focused and ambitious and living around people who are like, maybe I'm more of like a big fish in a small pond in that regard. And it calms me down a little bit. Totally. And you're single now. Uh, I am very recently. <laughs> oh, Newly, nice. All right. Freshly single. Yeah. Nice, nice. I mean, that's got to be a big factor where you live. You don't want to move to the middle of the woods if you're single. No, you absolutely do not. Well, Liron, thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, you are the founder of Relationship Hero, one of the most popular relationship coaching platforms out there. I think um, just for context, you guys make, I would guess, like millions of dollars in revenue and you started it in what, 2017? Yeah, that's right. Uh, high single digit millions and it's been slowly growing. Um, you know, it's not exploding exponentially because of the market of relationship coaching, even though we're kind of number one in the market, it is kind of yeah. a small niche market. I'm sorry to say, but I'm optimistic that more people are going to discover the market. It's kind of crazy that it's a small niche market because you have like, you have these relationships in life that I think are like absurdly important. Anything from like, who are you going to be roommates with to who you're going to start your, your company with? And especially like, who's going to be like a romantic sexual partner, right? And it's like this hugely valuable relationship that's going to de like determine potentially the course of your life. And yet we almost as a society invest like very little, you know, it comes down to like, oh, who did you swipe right on Tinder? And the idea of like having relationship coaches or dating coaches is like surprisingly not that popular compared to how important it is. So true, man. And, you know, that was uh, when we made a slide deck for investors, I just put up a pie chart and it's like, look, just like think about your life, right? Like what's important in your life? What's valuable to you? relationships, you got to give that like a pretty big slice of the pie, right? So if you look at the market size, or you look at where people's budgets are going, you know, a lot of them are going to like impressing their date, right? Like looking good on a day, like going to fancy stuff on the date, but like, why not just invest a little more in like making the right decisions on a date? So you don't waste like four years of your life, you know, dating the wrong person, right? Or, or like, not yeah, a bad relationship. Yeah. So is, is relationship here more about um, helping you find the right person to, is, it, is it more about like, okay, I'm single, let me come to a relationship here and like find out how to date? Or is it more like, hey, I'm in a relationship and we were having issues, let's find a couple's sort of counselor or a relationship coach to help us with our issues? Uh, it's both. So the range of stuff we do is uh, super broad. Uh, so we have dating coaches, which is uh, actually the origin of relationship here was on the dating side, uh, because it's what I'm more familiar with when I started the company. Um, I, I just was about to get engaged. So I had a lot of dating experience at that point. Uh, but we also have coaches, you know, for people who have been in multi-decade relationships and we do couples coaching um, and all of the things we do are like very high stakes, like even just dating, right? Like my wheelhouse, um, I personally have done some, some dating coaching at the beginning just because coming from a nerd background, I had so much to learn about dating. And, you know, if you recently learned, you can teach and it's like, look, it's high stakes, what you're texting and what you're doing, right? So I feel like the, the coaching does pay off. The coaching can pay off. I'll share a really quick horror story, which is that my most recent girlfriend before the current one, we were together for, I think, three years. And when we pretty much were effectively broken up, we decided at that point to get, to get a relationship coach, basically at a point where our relationship was on its dying embers. And then we went in and it was, if anything, the usefulness of the coach was that she like, didn't allow us to deny the reality that was our terrible relationship and we really quickly wrapped it up yeah i mean yeah you know a lot of times the coach is even just like a, a venue you know which is uh, similar to therapy in the sense of like just like having a space where you just like have to get stuff out there and like face it that's yeah. already like a big chunk of the value yeah so are you single Laurent? Um, so I'm actually married uh, with two kids so you know I'm, okay. I'm kind of out of the game on the dating coaching the opposite but, of single. Uh, the, yeah, I'm more, I'm more, okay, I'm more in the market for the the relationship pointers now, but um, I guess, but most of my memories of needing relationship coaching are very much on the dating side. Is that why you ended up starting this? Was it like a sort of a scratch your own itch? Hey, I would love to have a dating coach. Let me make this dating coach platform. Very much, yeah, because so for most of my 20s, um, you know, when I was thinking of startup ideas, I had a previous startup called Quixie that was in a totally different space and ended up being a, a huge failure. But as I was uh, thinking of other ideas to do, I'm like, what problems am I actually familiar with? I'm not familiar with that many problems. You know, I've, I've lived a fortunate life, but like, I really suck at dating, right? <laughs> like my date, you know, as a nerdy guy, it's like, I really don't know like what to say on a date. And like texting was the worst, right? Cause I'd like match somebody on like, okay, Cupid or, you know, hinge. 
Um, and it's like, man, it's like this white screen of text. Like, what the hell? You know, it's like, I don't have anything to say. Like, let's go on a date. Um, but then it turns <laughs> out, it turns out it's like, look, there's like communication skills that you can do. There's like, there's actually like ways to just like have a good conversation that's like fruitful and in, in getting to know each other. Right. So that there is like, um, a kind of a system to it. Right. And, um, and that's what I like finally learned. And then I'm like, well, wait a minute, this is like a problem that I think I can help others with and, and maybe they'll even pay for it and it could be a business. I just feel like it's such a great business. Like my ex um, was a relationship coach. Like she wasn't on any sort of platform like yours because I think relationship heroes sort of employees or like it's maybe a marketplace to find these coaches. Mm -hmm. uh, she just had her own business and her and her partner made like millions and millions of dollars doing relationship coaching. Like it's wow. so like it's like people sleep on like how big of an industry it could be even though there's not enough people finding coaches. Like you can charge a super high amount of money just because people like People's relationships are the most important things in their life. So it's like a smart industry to build a business in, I think. It's very true. Yeah. And, you know, the it, when we originally started, you know, we were optimistic that we'd grow into the billions just because we look at therapy, right? Like BetterHelp uh, is, is making like hundreds of millions a year in revenue. And we're like, look, if you look at the average person, you know, do they go to therapy? Maybe. Could they use some help with their relationship? I would argue that's even higher probability than needing to go to therapy. So we were kind of calibrating our market size to therapy. Um, it just hasn't worked out on the marketing side where you, you just don't see that many people, you know, holding up their hand being like, I need a relationship coach now. It's it's not as much of like a known thing that people are asking for right now. Well, one thing I would add to it not being so much of a known thing is that both with relationship coaching and even with online dating, I've noticed that, I don't know, three out of five of my friends who don't live in coastal cities turn their noses up at it. They have this very right. romantic traditional notion that, Anything that is related to like romance or relationships or your skill with like communicating with the uh, with whatever sex you're interested in needs to be completely natural and like there doesn't like you mentioned system. I know people who would instantly be like, "What? What, what do you, what do you <laughs> right. mean system? Right? Like, that so, sounds so yeah. unnatural. That sounds so weird." Right, and you know the the ultimate uh, creepy system is like the pickup artist stuff, right? Which right. is they, and you know I'm I'm not ashamed to admit I've like studied them uh, pretty comprehensively all the different pickup artist stuff because I'm a systematic guy, right? And I really like that they're always offering a system. Now, unfortunately, uh, they're like bad systems. They have like a million problems, but their pitch that they're going to uh, systematize it and like you know just explain it um, that part has a lot of appeal. Yeah. Well, I think like there's so many different stories of like nerds approaching dating in ways that are off-putting to like maybe the average person that, that just like they don't seem romantic. Like um, our mutual friend Sam Parr Channing, have you heard the story of how he basically decided to start dating and like his approach to it as a nerd? I interviewed no, him on another podcast. I, I talked, talked to him a little bit it. about it in person, but I haven't heard. Anything. Yeah, he's basically like, "Hey, I'm a nerdy guy. You know, I'm not that. Like, how do I use my intelligence that I like, apply to startup life to like basically pick a life partner?" And he just did a bunch of research on like what group is uh, essentially the most like likely to like to like me, and he like went on and he like did I think okay keep it a bunch of reports and he's like okay like black women for whatever reason like don't get don't get like as much attention on the dating app so like if I'm gonna invest my time I should invest my time there and more likely to have like outsized gains and he did and he found like an awesome partner he's still married to she's super smart and cool but like. You know, most people hearing that story, it's like, that doesn't sound super romantic. You know, like, that sounds like, you fucking nerd. How could you approach dating like that? It should be, you know, romantic. It should be serendipitous. Like, you shouldn't have... Why didn't you, you shouldn't wish have, a star? <laughs> yeah, you shouldn't have a system, so... Yeah, you know, that is not in our playbook of <laughs> advice for how we recommend <laughs> finding somebody, but, uh, wow, I'm glad it worked for him. I want to, like, you've written a bunch online. You have uh, this awesome concept that you call the great filter of startups. You know, there's, like, the Fermi paradox. Why... You know, there's so many planets, there's so many stars, why aren't there aliens, you know, all over the galaxy, right? And it's, there's got to be some sort of great filter, some sort of gap that makes it really hard for any intelligent civilization to spread out and take over the galaxy. Is it because it's really hard for intelligent life to evolve? Or is it because it's really hard for people to get to the point of faster than light travel? Or is it because, you know, species kill themselves? Like, where where is it that's stopping, you know, aliens from eventually taking over? And you can ask the same question with startups. Like, at what point in the startup life cycle do most founders fail, either give up or quit or have their company collapse so they don't eventually get to this like billion dollar exit and IPO or they don't get to this indie hacker dream of having a profitable business that just provides for their lifestyle. Um, where, do you, where do you think that great filter is? Like what's killing most startups? 
I love that you ran with the Fermi paradox analogy, <laughs> the Fermi paradox and the great filter, because yeah, it's exactly right. You look at the empty universe and you're like, what killed off the aliens? Where was the biggest improbability barrier of, uh, you know, of atoms becoming sentient life? Like, where's the biggest barrier? And right, and then I make the analogy to startups. If you do a postmortem on like, why did this startup not become a huge company? The most likely place that it failed was actually that initial point of uh, creating value for one user. Um, and that's what I think is underappreciated. That's what I call the great filter of startups. The idea that, uh, in my estimation, 80% of startups will just shut down without having created value for one user. To me, that's insane because we're not talking about like, okay, you didn't make your unit economics work, right? Or like you didn't scale enough to, to run a profitable operation. It's like, no, 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 you didn't create value for one user. And, and yet you like burned $5 million and, and you had like a big team. It's like, what were you doing? Right. So that, that's like the question I ask. One thing I've noticed anecdotally from just basically interacting with hundreds and thousands of indie hackers, so they're not necessarily startup founders who are raising money, is that with them, at least, the great filter doesn't necessarily seem to be where they're provably providing value to one user. It's just getting to the point where they're genuinely building and launching their companies. I mean, like, entrepreneur seems to be the biggest term that's thrown around on indie hackers. Your starting line is even earlier. It's like right. basically not even getting started is the great. It's it's basically the equivalent of like the great filter for aliens being like intelligent life just doesn't evolve very often, let alone succeed. Like I would life. imagine that the the drop off point for both of these different milestones, right? One is I'm going to be an entrepreneur and then, okay, well, are you building and trying to launch something? The drop-off point is massive for that. And then I think likewise, once you're building and you're going through basically playing startup, the drop-off point for then like, okay, let me find someone. His name is going to be Leron, you know, and, and, and you know, I'm going to like try to get him to buy a thing. The drop-off point there is also, I think, massive. That's very interesting. Yeah, because, you know, there is a selection effect, right, where if I'm talking to somebody, it's because I'm like helping them apply to YC or they're, they're trying right. to get investment. And, and you guys are seeing this, this indie hackers community where it's like much more casual. Yeah, it's like the, the very top of the entrepreneurship funnel at Indie Hackers mm -hmm. where it's like we're talking to people who are like, hey, my mom saw this story and I read it and mm -hmm. it's like really interesting and maybe I should quit my job. So we're talking to people who are like haven't even heard of YC yet and they're like super duper early in the sort of like inspiration phase of becoming startup right. founders. Now, I think the advice might be the same. I mean, I know your advice is like, hey, try getting started, see what happens. And the way I would phrase it is like, see if you can just go give value to the first person, right? And you probably want to do that in a manual way, right? Like don't write some code is usually the advice I give, right? But yeah. just like go 100%. get somebody hooked. Yeah. Yeah. What do, what do you think um, the real great filter is for aliens around? Like what's your, <laughs> what's your guess? So I love the great filter idea. It's it's a, I think it was a, from around 2000. It's by Robin Hansen. And uh, he actually has an update on the great filter, which I think is oh, yeah. uh, it's underappreciated. Um, so first there was a Fermi paradox, and then there was Robin Hansen's uh, great filter observation. And now as of uh, a couple years ago, he's updated it with a new research paper that he calls Grabby Aliens. And he's like, look, grabby the most aliens. yeah, grabby aliens, like aliens that just like to like grab things and like, because the, the whole idea is like, if an alien's grabby, it's like really expanding, and you really should be able to see it. Like, it's really weird that the sky just looks like there's a bunch of like untouched galaxies because like they really mm -hmm. should be like harvesting that power to be like replicating <laughs> and doing whatever they want to do. So the, the idea of grabby aliens is like, look, it's still early in the evolution of the universe. It's kind of like the starting gun has gone off, and like throughout the the really large universe, there are a, there are a bunch of uh, intelligent civilizations evolving we're just one of the first within the visible universe but like he mm. predicts that like a couple billion light years away there's already like another one or two civilizations that are popping off and now it's just like a race to like take over the universe like as fast as possible right. and, like, they're just far enough away like it's still early like and he does some calculations he's like look if you look at the fact that how we came in uh, in the earth like he has some analysis that you know I, I don't fully get it but it's like okay well we came in after like a billion years but it seems like if you roll the dice it should have like taken much longer so like it seems like we really are like we're just really early that's an interesting theory because like the universe is like many 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 billions of years old but i, I mean it's presumably going to last for like you know many more billions of years so like yeah we could right. be super early i love even the sci-fi shit even a trillion actually right so he's like yeah. look this seems early right now it's like yeah, it's a it's early. right now my my favorite theory is that we have a false assumption that the best thing to do as an alien is or any species is to take over the the galaxy that we just need to keep expanding because that's how we treat land on earth so why wouldn't we do the same thing to the planets my guess is this 
and this is obviously just completely pulled out of my ass, uh, that essentially that there isn't, that it's not very like resource efficient to try to take over the galaxy, that most species will have a pretty short lifespan anyway, and like traveling throughout the galaxy is just like not very efficient. And that actually, if we reach a certain level of like, I don't know, techno utopia, technological advancement, that it's better to just like make life on one planet awesome. And so you could do that in a number of ways. Like for example, like we as a species are just now really experimenting with virtual reality. But you can imagine a world like the Matrix where we create like a digital world where you can plug into you and it's essentially just as good, if not better than the real world if we have sufficiently advanced technology and you can do whatever you want in the digital world. And why, you know, try to expand different planets if everybody can just plug in, you know, utilize fewer resources, keep the planet basically like alive instead of, you know, catastrophically harvesting resources and then just keep the population low and just live out our days like that. I can imagine there being a lot of alien civilizations that just do that, in which case we wouldn't see them because like they don't care about the galaxy. It's not as valuable as so. Cortland, you haven't worlds. you haven't read uh, Elon Musk's one of his most recent tweets about how we're going to have some existential crisis. You know, a, a comet is going to hit a meteorite or something's going to hit the Earth, and so you don't think that we need to be an interplanet planetary species for purely self preservation reasons. I get that. I just don't think we're that long-sighted. I think the average person doesn't give a shit that the, like, at some point in the next billion years, life's going to be wiped out by some sort of effect like that. And I think that it's just really hard to travel across space. But I don't know. This is all very well, handy stuff. One more caveat is, sure, maybe humanity won't become grabby and maybe a bunch of alien civilizations aren't grabby. I love grabby. Yeah, gra they're just chilling, right? But yeah. uh, Robin Hansen's observation is like, the thing is, you only need one to become grabby and then they start yeah. like essentially attacking mm. everybody. So you kind of have to be grabby <laughs> defensively. Yeah, you could you could be. There's a really good sci-fi uh, series. I think they're gonna make a, a Netflix show about it, um, or maybe HBO is doing it with the same guys who wrote Game of Thrones. But it's an adaptation from a, a book called The Remembrance of Earth's Past. I don't want to ruin it, but it's kind of a sort of about this exact concept of very grabby aliens trying to sort of spread throughout the galaxy. Anyway, let's talk about let's talk about startups. So you right. you got over this this great feel to yourself. Um, the very first one that Channing's mentioning, where you got inspired to start startups, and you decided you know being a software engineer isn't just good enough. I want to, I want to be at the top of the org chart. Like, where do you go from there? Like, what's the first step after you decide you want to do this to eventually starting relationship here? Yeah. So we started pretty lean. We started with just a Facebook group to give our friends advice. Um, and it was funny. We just tested it with a handful of friends. And one of the first use cases was our friends would just post screenshots of like dating conversations they're having. And they're, and they're like, oh man, this girl said this, like, what should I tell her? Should I ask her out on a date? Like hmm. stuff like that. Um, and then we would just give advice in the Facebook group. And so we watched it for like a month and then, you know, I check it in a month and it's like still active. And I'm like, well, if this group is still active for a month, you know, that's, that's like more than my friends have ever humored me on like any project that I've asked <laughs> them to check out. So that was like a good first sign. Right. And then from there we're like, well, maybe we can get people on Reddit to like come for free. And so we had like a free chat room and we spent like a couple months just like getting people to engage for free. And then probably the hardest step was like, okay, now let's try to charge them money. And then it was like instantly everybody's gone, you know, it's like ghost down. When you say we, who's we? Oh, right. Okay. So I started Relationship Hero. I had a co-founder. Um, he was with the company for four years and, and now he's uh, on to his next gig. But he uh, he was also a dating coach. His name's Lior. Um, and he was like the, the head of coaching for a while. And I was like business and, and software engineering. So we would both give dating advice and he would also give relationship advice. He wrote up a bunch of curriculum for the coaches. And the whole idea was like, can we translate like this fun experiment we're doing with our friends? Can we turn it into a place where like coaches come and they like learn how to be better coaches and then and then we like get paid, right? So like a few things to click into place. I think Facebook groups are so underrated as like a form of like validating ideas or like as an early yeah. version of any sort of project because it's like it takes you five seconds to create a group. You already have a ton of friends on the platform. Like I never use Facebook, but I also never deleted my account. So if a friend were like, hey, join this group, blah, blah, blah. Like every, once every couple of years, someone says that and like I'll join and talk to people. And then like Facebook itself is so good at like surfacing kind of the conversations to other people uh, that it just kind of like it's, just the easiest way, I think, to like bootstrap a very small group of people to discuss any sort of idea. Totally. Yeah. I mean, it's to the point where when people, as an angel investor, when people are telling me about their idea, if they're telling me that they're like interacting with people on Facebook and like they haven't written code, for me, that's like a, a big point to score. You know, creating value without writing code, great sign of a startup. What's the, um, so you have this idea, I think you call it like the, the value proposition story. It's like mm -hmm. the story you're saying that startups should walk themselves through before you write any code, before you do any market research, like you can just like tell yourself this story and try to like instantaneously see if your startup idea makes any sense. So how does that how does that work? And did it apply to you starting relationship here? 
Yeah, um, the value prop story, right? And I feel like I got to pick another term because it's like, you know, three words, value prop story. It's like a little wordy, but you also see me on Twitter talking about hollow abstraction. Mm -hmm. It's related to that. There's actually something really deep here, which is it's this idea that when you pitch something abstractly, sometimes it can sound good and it can have no flaws. Like the abstract pitch, you can't really argue back against it. And yet there's no specific example of what you mean. And that's what I mean by a pitch that's like, you, it doesn't have a value prop story. It, it is a hollow abstraction, and yet it sounds super convincing. And I've been tripped up on those kind of pitches a lot in my career. Arguably, my company that I had that I, I failed, a lot of the pitch was a hollow abstraction. And so the point of the value prop story test is to open the trap door of an abstract pitch and to be like, what specific example does this map to, if any? And that's so, the key is some of them map to zero. So what would be like an example of like a hollow abstraction uh, business idea that just doesn't map to anything specific? Yeah, um, well, obviously, you know, crypto is such a rich space of hollow abstractions. But like, let's say micropayments, right? Not necessarily crypto, which is like, I'm going to make uh, a business to enable better micropayments. And it's going to be great because suddenly you can pay any amount. You don't just have to pay like minimum of a dollar. You can pay a penny, right? And you can like stream somebody's wage at their work. And also you can like pay a penny to read an article. So if I right. pitch it to you like that, it's like, that's pretty cool. Like, sure, That's that totally awesome. should yeah. exist. Yeah, exactly, right? Um, but the, the Achilles heel of that idea is when you then force the person to add specific context. It's like, great, I, I have no flaw with that abstractly. Like, there's nothing wrong. I'm not against micropayments. It sounds great. But now tell me one example. And they're, and they're like, okay, here's my example. <laughs> reading an article. And I'm like, okay, like reading like a New York Times article. And like, yeah. And they're like, okay, well, if, you know, but why just pay for one article? Why not just like have a tab of like two bucks where I can just read a few articles? Like, is it really that big deal? Because I'm going to be back, you know, in the next year. Is it right. like, what's really the pain point there? And they're like, well, okay, maybe not New York Times. And I'm like, okay, so you want to pick a different example, right? And it's like really hard to pick an example. Okay, so how do you, how do you fix this? problem like you're trying you're sitting here with relationship hero you've got your facebook group you know how do you basically make this a specific pitch and go through this value prop story process so for example like my friend uh, is trying to uh, figure out the best text to send on a dating app and he likes this girl he's trying to get a date um, now, without Relationship Hero, he sends a text and then he's confused why he doesn't get a reply, right? Like he thought things were going fine and he just doesn't know what he did wrong and he doesn't get a reply and he doesn't get the date. And suddenly the whole timeline of his life is now awry, right? Because he could have been married to that girl. Um, so it's like a disaster. Um, but with Relationship Hero, right? So we help him analyze the conversation. We're like, well, this point, you actually just said something that's just like, it's really difficult to reply to. Like you didn't really steer the conversation in a certain direction. Anyway, so we give him like this tip. Um, and suddenly he does get that reply and the conversation's back on track. So like that would be the value prop, you know, the difference between the before and after of using Relationship Hero. And so now you have like real names with Relationship Hero because your actual friends are in the Facebook group. Like what were they doing? Like sharing their dating woes with you or like helping each other workshop dating? Like what were they actually posting about? Yeah, so it was a lot of screenshots both from dating apps and then from texting that would happen after the date, yeah. And then right. later on, as we branched out, we started getting like texts from people within relationships and then breakups became a really great segment for us. Is there really a niche of people where they've already broken up and they are trying to negotiate the question of whether to get back together? Yeah, that's actually a, a really large niche. Yeah, and the funny thing is like, because you never even necessarily get closure, right? So you could even have a different relationship, right? And then like 10 years pass and you're like, I wonder if I should get back together with that other yeah. one. Right? So like, it's never good. There's never closure. This is so fascinating because I, I feel like there's such a huge long tail of like SEO keywords, just like basically mm -hmm. tens of millions of people trying to workshop their relationships by Googling this stuff. Like anything from like, yeah. how do you break up with someone effectively? Or should I break up with this person? Or like, how do I know if this person is right for me? There's like probably like a million different terms like that. And every one of them can be kind of answered by like, talk to this relationship coach. Mm -hmm. I mean, Google search is actually our best marketing channel. So our, our funnel is like somebody is Googling for a question. And e even my wife was like, yeah, one time I had a bad breakup and I was like so distraught. And I just remember I was like Googling for answers. I was like, oh, there you go. You would have found a relationship here. Like, yeah. Um, and, how do you recover from a breakup? How do you feel better? How long do you feel sad after a breakup? Like all these are relevant questions. Exactly. Now, you know, the problem for us as a business, though, is like they don't really expect the answer to be like a coach, even though that's like the best yeah. answer. Like we mm. actually can pretty quickly, like give you some really good guidance, like just because we're like, you know, we specialize in this stuff. Um, and so so we have to get them over the hump of like, well, if you don't mind paying a little bit for a coach, like it's going to be worth it. But they're kind of right. just like they're expecting to read an article. They're just yeah. like, is it yes or no? Exactly. <laughs> so what what's the next step after you have like 
sort of validated like, okay, there are specific people who want to use this. My friends in this Facebook group, like how do you go from a Facebook group to like a real business where you're actually building out a product and you're beginning to start like charging money and market it? It was really mostly like the the exercise of like, how do you just streamline a marketing funnel? And to some degree, we had to streamline the hiring funnel, but the supply side was always easier than the demand side because there's a lot of uh, perfectly good coaches um, who are all just like bottlenecked on getting clients the way we are as a business. So it's kind of funny that we took our greatest weakness and like made it our greatest strength to the coaches. Like, hey, we're good at this, even though it's like our greatest weakness. Right. Yeah, but so so the supply side was the relatively easy side and the demand side has always been the hard side. And so just like we have like what's called consultant coaches that, that basically like advise the clients on like which coach they should get and like, you know, what they should purchase and, and obviously like what size package and like recommend the upside of like doing a two month coaching package instead of just a single session. Right. So like that's right. That's part of like making the business work is like, you know, getting those higher LTVs. Yeah, that's such an interesting problem because. Again, I've mentioned that like my ex was like a relationship coach and she made the bulk of her money just charging like three or four hundred dollars an hour to mostly couples who are having like relationship issues, um, sexual issues. Uh, and then eventually she hit on teaching and she realized like, hey, a lot of other people want to do what I'm doing. They would love to be relationship coaches, but they don't know a lot of stuff, right? They don't know how to be good relationship coaches. They haven't put in the hours and the work. And also like they don't know how to do marketing. They don't know how to get clients to find them. And that's like the hard part. And so basically your supply side is all these coaches who don't know how to like, maybe they have the skills, but they like have trouble getting more clients in the door. And then you guys, you're saying you have the same exact issue. It's really hard to find clients, but like, we're just unlike a little their, better at it than them. That's it. Exactly. You're just like a little bit better. Like they've got to work, like focus on two problems, how to be a good coach and how to find clients. And you could focus almost exclusively on like, we'll find clients for you. And they have really nothing mm -hmm. to lose by, by signing up with you and saying, okay, like hopefully these, these guys come through right. and if they don't, they don't. I guess, how did you go from like making your first dollar to, to making more money? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, in startups, uh, VCs love when you've got like an unfair distribution advantage. Um, but we only have fair distribution advantages. Like we only do it the hard way. Like we just do Google, Facebook ads. Uh, we do affiliates uh, where we just bid on like impressions, you know, like cut out the middleman, Google AdSense. So like we've never figured out any creative way um, to market ourselves. We, you know, we just, it just all we did is we just monetize it so that we can afford to spend money to market. Um, and you know what sucks is we can't do demographic targeting because our our users are um, like ages 18 to 80, uh, both genders equally, like every walk of life, um, you know, you kind of have to have some amount of disposable income, but like we just can't target. And so like the Google search or like on or affiliate pages are like the best way to target. Do you remember around the very first dollar that you made, like the very first time you guys actually connected somebody mm -hmm. to a coach? Yeah. And it's kind of funny because I was telling my co-founder, I was like, I don't want to turn on monetization because it's going to require some code. It's like, just like keep getting the the free people to like use it more. And there was this guy, Edward, who uh, was a professional meat packer from Texas, um, obviously didn't have the highest disposable income, but he was like using relationship heroes so much that it's like, all right, Edward, we got to charge you. It's going to be $5 for unlimited coaching for the next week, which is like the cheapest thing ever. And he's like, okay, fine. That's worth it. Um, so a week goes by and, it's, and and of course he like uses it to the max, right? Gets like dozens of hours of coaching, like for me and my co-founder. And it's like, all right, we're raising it to 10. And then he's like, okay, I'm out. I can't do 10. Um, so like and of course we just did it through like a PayPal invoice. So you've mentioned that one of your best marketing channels is SEO, but what other marketing channels have you tried that didn't work out so well? We kind of tried them all. So like, you know, it, it, it's like I'm a pro at like dumping a bunch of money into something and getting like zero result and then being frustrated. <laughs> like I've done that so many times. Like, you know, we did like radio ads, uh, like 10 grand. And so we get like zero people using our like special tracking link. Okay. And then I'm like, well, that was a complete waste. But since then, a couple people have told me like, oh yeah, relationship here. I heard that on the radio. So like, at least I know that they like <laughs> played the ads. Like they didn't screw us. What about, um, have you tried any influencer marketing? Because I know there are these like, there are these people out there who just have huge followings in terms of people trust their relationship advice and their life advice. So you've got like big names like um, Brene Brown, for example. She writes a lot about just relationships and sort of like being a whole person. Um, and then you have like relationship coaches. Have you tried like reaching out to any of them and getting them to promote you to their audiences? 
Yeah, we have a little bit. And there are some coaches, especially the coaches that are more hands-off, like, oh, do my email coaching. Like there are ones where we're just better as an upsell. But for the ones where they monetize by themselves coaching, it's a little competitive. So it's not the best affiliate partnership. But like we do have a bunch of affiliates, like content sites are our best affiliates. We're always hoping to get a dating app as a major affiliate. It hasn't come through yet just because there's not that many dating apps at the right scale. But like that is our advantage um, is like we're a good backend for getting higher value purchases if you have clients who are like buying cheaper stuff from you. So like, I do think that'll probably hit for us at one point. For example, like let's say Oprah wanted to have like Oprah's coaching, you know, like a white label relationship here operation could make a lot of sense. Do you have coaches who are are getting rich off your platform? Like they're making like, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars from coaching? I'm not going to go to rich, but, um, you know, we're happy that uh, a few are making six figures. That's if if you're like in the top 10% of relationship area, you're at least making six figures. Uh, on the platform, which is pretty nice when you get to work anywhere around the world. Yeah. And you're essentially your job is to talk to interesting people about like love and sex and, and their partners. Right, exactly, honestly, it's yeah. a pretty sweet job. Like most people I know who are relationship coaches like enjoy doing it a lot. You just, you, you just gave a hypothetical about getting Oprah to be a coach, which makes me curious about quality control. I mean, you're not a coach. How do you like make sure that your coaches are good. How do you like, it's, you know, it's the, the, the classic problem. If you're not a developer and you want to hire a developer, then it's like, you're like, you have no idea of how to assess them. So what's your process? Yeah. So we used to uh, be more hands-on and like really train them and, and be very picky about like exactly how they coached. Now we're more of a marketplace model where we just look at what they do in their current coaching business. So we're just picking and we're like, look, you, you basically just already have to prove that you're successful. Like, so we don't really take the raw talent and make you successful. We just like, look at what you already have going on and then just like, you know, sharing your success as your agent, basically. Um, so that's already a lot of evidence coming in. Like we look at your resume, we look at your training. Um, and then once you get on the platform, uh, we are really quantitative of like, you know, what are your clients saying in the reviews? What's your retention rate? And we just go by the numbers. Like, are you matching like what a successful coach looks like? Um, and we just weed out pretty quickly, like the few people who aren't meeting the standards. So it's like very quantitative. Right. And as a user, do you get like the same, like if I come to you, I'm like, I want a relationship coach for, you know, my relationship with me and my girlfriend, it's not going so well. When I come back, do I get the same coach over and over or do I get paired with the different coaches every time? That is the default, especially because like the coaches have like longer term programs. So you're probably like in a program with a coach. But there are some clients who are like, look, I just want to have three different coaches. And like we support that, too. I just want to call you guys up when I'm having a fight and then just get somebody to tell me that I'm right and that I'm the one who's, who's correct. Do you offer do you offer that service, perhaps? Um, yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, if that's, if that's what uh, boosts their confidence, <laughs> they can try. I remember I, uh, my friend Len worked at HomeJoy. And they're like, uh, do you know what HomeJoy was? They're like a yeah, like yeah. And actually, like a- Adora was uh, my product manager at Slide, so we go back. Oh, really? Okay, so you have the connection. Yeah, they were like a cleaning service, and I th- I remember one of their issues was that like, if somebody comes to clean your home, like, like you don't really want that to be a total stranger. Ideally, like maybe the first time they're a stranger, but the second time you like you want that same person back because you trust them. It's this very intimate sort of interaction, um, and they'll be better at cleaning your home if they cleaned it before and they know kind of what you like. And I think one of the challenges with HomeJoy in particular was that like every time you might just get a total random person. And so having a coaching is like the same thing to me. It's like I personally would want the same coach, assuming they're really good. I had a therapist with my ex as well. And he was so good at like telling you what you were doing wrong. Like he would come up with some sort of euphemistic phrase to explain. Like for me, he had like a, like I could be argumentative, but he wouldn't say, oh, Cortland, you're argumentative. You need to chill out. He'd say, hey, you've got kind of like a, a warrior lawyer inside of you, right? Like a warrior lawyer. And I would hear that. I'm like, I do have a warrior lawyer. Like I'm all <laughs> proud of it. <laughs> but he's really just telling me like something that's like wrong and need to change. So I feel like you can find someone who's like you like, but who also can give it to you real and like not just take your side. And probably, you know, from our perspective, it's like, look, it's probably better than talking to your friend. That's kind of like the next best yeah. alternative. So I was reading your uh, your Twitter bio. You describe yourself. Uh, as Liran Shapira, rationalist, entrepreneur, angel investor, author of BloodedMVP.com, and aspiring to be the Michael Burry of crypto. <laughs> and that last part, <laughs> I think, is super interesting. So Michael Burry, for uh, maybe some listeners who don't know, he's kind of famously predicted uh, the big real estate bubble in the early 2000s. He predicted that it would collapse, and then he made something like $700 million for his investors, and like 100 mil for himself, basically shorting against the market. And then when the real estate bubble did burst, he just, he just got huge. And so there's like a, like a movie about him, The Big Short, one of my favorite movies, uh, where Christian Bale plays Michael Burry. You want to be Michael Burry for crypto, which I assume means uh, you want to 
bet against crypto and make a lot of money doing that? Like, what is like, what's the strategy there? Like, how do you how do you achieve becoming the Michael Berry of crypto? There's a couple differences between me and Michael Burry. Like, I don't have a you know multi hundred million fund or anything. I didn't go raise money for investors to do the strategy. Um, I just put like half a million of my own money uh, on a on a short portfolio against Bitcoin, which has done well in the last few months. Um, so you know, I hope to make like a couple million out of this when when all is said and done. If if Bitcoin and crypto crash, as I predict, um, but worst case, it, even if Bitcoin stays bubbly forever, like that's fine. You know, it's I'm not risking it all. Um, but the, the interesting thing about crypto is for a while, there was a lot of alpha and betting that it's, it's going to crash. I mean, back in the day, a few months ago, right, when, when Bitcoin was trading at 67K, when Rivian was trading at like $140 a share, I was like, are you kidding me? Like there's so much uh, <laughs> so much juice to, to squeeze mm-hmm. out of these stocks. Um, and there's a lot less now, like the the odds when you're when you're doing a long put on like a deep out of the money put on, on like the Bitcoin ETF, uh, you know, the publicly traded ETF. It's now like the markets have gotten wise, like, okay, yeah, this thing might crash again. So a lot of the opportunity has already passed, right. but I still think there's some opportunity to make a few bets like this. So explain, <laughs> explain your, like this financial terminology. What is a deep out of the money put? So like, let's say the price of, uh, of a Bitcoin ETF, Bitcoin ETF is just something that goes up and down when Bitcoin goes up and down essentially. Um, so if it's currently valued at like 20 bucks, I might buy something where if the price goes below uh, $7, you know, it's not 20, that's when I start making money. And then like the lower it goes below seven, the more money the more I make. Money and it's make. called a deep out of the money put because seven is like way below 20, right? As opposed to like a, a $19 put, it's a $7 put. Right. So essentially you're basically just betting on Bitcoin or Ethereum or any crypto, whatever you're betting on just to basically drop like a stone <laughs> and go way yeah, further. Yeah. I really think that, I mean, the trillion dollar valuation of the crypto space, I don't necessarily think it's like a complete zero, but I think it's like, you know, 10 billion, right? Like much smaller than a trillion in my estimation. So that's why I feel like it's it's like a pretty attractive bet to buy put options. I read on Twitter, one of your cases against crypto or one of your, one of your criticisms against a lot of like, you know, crypto bros is this hollow abstraction idea that there's a lot of people selling abstract visions of crypto that don't ever track with, you know, very concrete, real promises. But besides that, sell me on why crypto is something that I should not involve myself in. Sure. Yeah. By the way, I used to, back in the day, I used to be pro crypto because the rationalist community uh, back around uh, 2010 uh, was saying like, Hey, Bitcoin seems like a cool bet. Like there's a chance that it might get really big. And if so, like, you know, it could have like a really high upside. So we should bet on it. So I actually did. I was buying Bitcoin, like in the really early days, I actually angel invested in Coinbase in 2012. So my views have obviously changed a lot. And what's crazy is I don't think Bitcoin makes that much sense anymore. Now that I actually like looked into macroeconomics a little more, I'm like, um, the central bank is actually like pretty critical the way that they regulate the money supply that has like a very important function and like the fact that bitcoin doesn't have that um is like bad like very bad right it could lead to like a deflationary spiral and and like directly lead to a great depression so like if i could go back in time and tell myself that um i would be right but i would also be poor you know? <laughs> so it's or like you know I'd, I'd make make less money on that bet um the thing about all these crypto pitches are they are, to be frank, like hollow abstractions, the ones that aren't scams, right? I'm not even telling you about the scams, the ones that are like trying to scam. I'm telling you about the ones that are founded, you know, funded by A16Z, funded by visionary founders who are really smart, who have other successful businesses besides this, like totally legit. Nobody's trying mm-hmm. to scam anybody. Uh, and yet it's like what I said about micropayments, right? So they're just like high on their own supply, which I've been there in my previous companies. They're like, man, wait until we get payments as the infrastructure of the internet. Things are going to absolutely change. And it's like, well, there's not really an example where they change. That's like the problem. Yep. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I've like looked into okay, what are the actual benefits of like blockchain technology, for example? What are the actual benefits of a lot of these coins? And like for most of them, I feel like the actual use cases when I get into the specifics aren't really like better than what you can already do today. For like the vast majority of them. But there are a few that like I'm curious to get your opinion on. Like for example, I'm a little bit bullish on NFTs. And I'm not bullish on like the speculative like sort of art market of NFTs where you release some sort of collection and lots of people speculate on the price. But I am bullish on like the blockchain as a database essentially that almost anybody can write to. Like almost like a universal API where I and indie hackers could, you know, reward users with some sort of badge or something or some sort of proof that they accomplished something on indie hackers put it into the blockchain so they can have that NFT in their wallet. And then any other website on earth could basically look at their crypto wallet and verify that they have this item that came from me. And what I think is cool about that is not that the technology enables something that couldn't already be done. Like you could just use a regular database for this. And honestly, it would be better than the blockchain. You could store more information, be faster to query, but that it's really hard on an adoption standpoint. 
basically the fact that crypto is so widely adopted that people can kind of feel like they trust it because it's not really like the Ethereum blockchain is not really owned by anyone. And so lots of bigger companies and smaller companies say, oh, I'll just like connect to this API. Whereas if, like if Google tried to make a universal database that everybody used, like nobody would really trust it. Makes me a little bit bullish for the future of NFTs as like some sort of way where a bunch of disparate internet services can essentially write to the same database. That's the only like it's the only thing that's ever gotten me really excited about crypto. What are what are like what are your thoughts on that? Is there anything that excites you about crypto? I'll tell you why I don't like blockchain as interoperability, but I'll mm. I'll give you one consolation prize of something that I think makes light sense after that. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. blockchain is interoperable. What you just described, I feel like people just pitch that and they work backwards from a solution. They're like, well, we have this blockchain. Yeah. Isn't it good as the interoperability layer? But if they reverse it and they're like okay, we need interoperability. How do we get interoperability? And they're like, totally. oh, we just need a decentralized proof of work or proof of stake thing where it prevents double spending. It's like, wait, what? I'm seeing like a mismatch here between like the problem and the solution. If you look at the problem first uh, thinking, start from the problem, you know, we have microformats, right? Like open graph, right, is a way that Twitter reads the tags on a page to know what image preview to display. Like you don't need blockchain technology, you know? Like, so there, there's a lot of ways to like show those badges on another page. Yeah, so you have that, but like what we don't have is essentially like because what I care about is adoption. Like for example, I don't care that much about the decentralized nature of the blockchain. I don't care very much about any of those other features you mentioned, like that a lot of crypto nerds get obsessed with. But what I do care about is the fact that like if anyone releases some sort of particular product, like it's really hard for it to be mass adopted. Just really hard. Um, something like Open Graph is cool, but Open Graph is like based on like a website, so like, I could add an open graph tag to like an indie hacker's user profile page but like that doesn't mean that like this user quote unquote like owns that information like i still sort of own that information and i think it's a, a kind of a cool like interesting problem that like if i for example work my way up to become a moderator for a particular subreddit like that's some amount of trust that i've earned on the internet and there is no real standard way for me to take that trust and prove to some other website that I have that trust. I mean, Reddit publishes like a JSON feed of who's a moderator of a subreddit and anybody can pull that in. Exactly, right. And so you have all these different proprietary formats of saying, oh, Reddit publishes this feed or indie hackers might put it on your open graph data or so-and-so Twitter might have their API. And these are all cool and they're very useful and they require sort of like a one-to-one -one mapping of anytime anyone wants to connect to a service, they need to read the sort of proprietary like documentation of that service, which I think is very cool and it's like one of the like the gems of the internet that you can do this but i also could see a path toward okay people are maybe excited about crypto for reasons that aren't even that good maybe from these hollow abstraction reasons and because crypto is decentralized like who cares about the direct benefits of that the indirect benefit is that people just trust it and it gets adopted a lot more and then you have kind of one standard and i can see a path where just because that's so singular and easy it sort of like becomes more popular and reddit might have their JSON file saying this, but they also might issue an NFT that says this thing, and that would be more interacted with. And if that were to happen, I could see it becoming more adopted. So that that's my only real bullish thing. But I, I mean, you're right. Like, there's not like a specific problem it solves. It's just more of like the other way, sort of looking from the solution onward. Potentially, just because it's convenient and well adopted, it might catch on. When I play through your example of, of the Reddit idea, you know, like, well, what if the format was more universal and it matched other sites? But it's like Imagine the consumer site, right, that wants to know that you're a Reddit mod. It's probably going to have some business logic to, like, interpret what it means to be a Reddit mod. So the same programmer who's writing that business logic might want to just, like, do an HTTP request and get the JSON, right? Like, it seems yep. like it's kind of the same. Uh, it kind of goes together. Yeah. Yeah, it could. On any hackers, for example, I would love it if I could, like, very easily determine, like, okay, this person is a YC founder. Why? Because when they'd sign up for Indie Hackers, they connected their crypto wallet, and I saw an NFT that was issued by Y Combinator that said this, or they graduated from this college, or they're, you know, I can trust that they're a real person because they have this Reddit moderator badge, and I know if Reddit trusts them, then I trust them. We're a long way away from any of this happening, and there isn't any sort of standard like this, so it's like it would be quite a while, and it would require, like, this back-end plumbing. Like, I would have to write this code. But it's like, I don't, this doesn't exist on the internet today. No one's done it. And I don't see a path of it ever existing unless there is some sort of like widely adopted database. And I don't see anything that's even close to being that besides potentially the blockchain. You know, we'd be having the same conversation if podcast RSS didn't exist. You'd be like, man, what if everybody could just put their podcast on the blockchain and then any exactly. player could consume it? Right. Yeah. But it's like, well, this one actually happens to be a Web2 solve. Problem. You see what I'm saying? It's like. Exactly. Yeah. It's like we agreed on the standard of, of podcasting. We, like, we've agreed on the standard for lots of different things, for like HTTP, for websites, or for like um, SMTP, or POP3 for email, or for you know RSS for podcasting. But it's just like there isn't a standard for like 
what represents like this idea of like a digital good? Like I, I earned something or bought something on one website and I want to be able to show it somewhere else. And like for all of these things, there wasn't like necessarily a need. Like before podcasting, there wasn't really like anyone saying like, God, I really need like a decentralized way to host my audio files. And yet because it got popular, it sort of created its own need. Like people started to expect it. And maybe it's not the ideal format. So I don't know. I mean, like on one hand, it's like I completely agree with you. Like there's no there's no real need. Like the world will be fine without this. And it's not enabling something that couldn't be built more simpler. But on the other hand, I feel like there's so many technological breakthroughs. Like the internet itself or the web itself. Like it wasn't solving a specific problem that like people out there are like, yearning for but once it got adopted i was using snail mail so i think it solved my problem when i was like literally (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly like it made life better now i've been primed to think about things in terms of well what's the what's like a concrete example of this right i don't know i play video games it would be kind of cool if i had just i don't know one avatar that i could take from like i don't know Fortnite to like so you know whatever call of duty and there's just some you earn know, you earn of, you earn like an item in one game and you go to another game right. and it can represent it because it's on the blockchain which is like again completely possible without the blockchain there's right. no reason you need the blockchain to make this happen but I'm i just don't see it ever like being that. yeah i just don't see it ever being adopted like, i understand I your point Corlin. yeah and i can so see like, that because the blockchain i can see that because the blockchain exists people might try it and then if enough people try it their games might just be popular enough that it catches on. So it's like, in a way, it's like it doesn't necessarily solve a non-existent problem, but I can see how it creates a reaction that creates its own demand because it's kind of a cool feature, and why not? So that's like that's the only, it's the only way in which I'm in any way bullish on anything crypto-related, and it's still a huge long shot. No, totally. And like, you know, I've, I've, I think it's kind of funny to be like, well, you know, Soviet Russia was like a really bad system of government, but like there was like some daycares that had like, you know, some good programs that they did. You know, it's like you're always going to find like some good stuff. Yeah. Very cool. Well, Laurent, we've kept you uh, for quite a while. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for sharing your story. Um, is there any piece of uh, advice, any experience you've gone through as a founder that you think fledgling indie hackers would benefit from hearing? Anything that you've learned on your journey that someone who's just now getting started and considering ideas might might want to take away? Yeah, I would say uh, give value to one user so that you have a specific example of what your value prop is. <laughs> All right. There you go. Thanks so much, Ron, for coming on. Where can um, listeners go to find out more about you and your writings and what you're up to with Relationship Hero as well? Uh, check me out uh, at Liron on Twitter or uh, bloatedmvp.com. All right. Thanks again. Right on.